welcome to the Niche Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices, instead look for the processes and questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Will Patch, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader for Higher Ed at Niche, and my guest today is Millian Trulove. Millian's the Vice President and Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid at Reed College. His work in admissions started as a student worker during his time at St. Olaf College. Diving into enrollment leadership early, he started in the profession as the Director of Full-Time MBA Admissions at the University of St. Thomas, followed by a Director of Admissions position at Hamlin University, and culminating in the position of Dean of Admission and Financial Aid before moving west to Reed. I think most importantly, and you'll definitely hear that today in our discussion, I'm sure, Million always tries to consider the student's perspective. If the college is producing information, he wants to ensure that students are able to understand it and benefit from it. He is passionate about fairness and about advocating for those who cannot do so for themselves, which I think are ideals that are just invaluable in his role as the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid. Welcome. Thanks for making time to chat today. Hey, well, thank you. That was really nice. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm going to start off today. Two questions that I ask everybody, two things that I love to know more about. First up here, what's something you tried that didn't work and what did you (laughs) learn from it? Oh, my gosh. So I, I had kind of this wild idea that, you know, we spent all this time with admission counselors who were sort of dedicated to helping seniors through the process. You know, we talk mm-hmm. a lot about seniors. Yeah. And so, you know, I had this idea that we should create a junior admission counselor. And so basically one person that was dedicated to helping recruit our juniors to give them information they need. They would plan like our junior visit days, provide information on the website that was specific for juniors. Yeah. You know, in all honesty, I thought it was a great idea because I done something like that before somewhere somewhere else and it com- completely failed really? it didn't yeah it, it didn't work at all i mean you know it, that, that was about the time where i sort of realized well no I, I i that's not fair i've realized this before but you just can't take something you tried at another place and copy paste it and assume yeah. it's going to work you know you have to do something that's specific for the people for the school you know when i did it before we actually created a student intern position Mm-hmm. And they were sort of coupled with an admission counselor and they would focus on the juniors. and The counselor would focus on the seniors. And this was one person that kind of had it all. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, they had way too much to do. In some cases, had not enough to do. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to get meaning out of this position, how to balance it, exactly what it was. And part of it, maybe I didn't sort of share the concept as well as I could have. Yeah, it didn't go great. So what did I learn? I, I've learned that you can't try one thing everywhere. You have to yep. be institute specific for the institution. Yep. There's no copy paste. <laughs> yeah, you got to be thoughtful about your needs. So, yeah. well, it kind of hurts to say that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the fun thing. That's why I love this question because we've all tried things that we thought, oh, this is great. This is going to work great. Yeah. It didn't work, but you learned something. Right. And you took that's the risk. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, I think... Everyone's going to say that you can't stop taking the risk. Yeah. Try and die. That I think really gets to the whole thesis of why I'm doing this podcast because there's so much of this. Well, that worked here. We should do that here. It's just copy pasting thing. That doesn't work. Well, I I actually think that is a true challenge of our industry is that people think innovation is copy paste. Yeah. And so we pause and wait to see how things were at other schools. And that's that's not true innovation. People rarely, in my opinion, try novel and new ideas, mm-hmm. but we're really quick to pick up something that was cool over there. I don't know. I feel like we kind of chase our tails around in a lot of these cases. Well, what are some practices you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? 
you know, <laughs> we um, don't brainstorm. What we do is, well, we brainstorm in a different way. Okay. So we talk about an issue, talk about some of the challenges, and then we take five or 10 minutes and people write down their top solutions to solve the idea. And then after the five or 10 minutes, we talk through people's list. And what I learned long time ago, whoever mm. speaks first, that idea funnels and shunts everything that comes afterwards. Yeah. And it is often hard to pick up any new original idea that's not some deviation or derivative of that original idea. When I do it with a new group of people, they're like, are you serious? Because <laughs> it seems sort of like elementary. But I got to tell you, you if, if you start off by saying something first, you will get five times more ideas if folks just write down what they're thinking in their heads later on and then share that. Yeah. So it's it's literally a practice that we do. Who's involved in these? Do you keep it like we have financial aid doing their brainstorming? We have admissions doing their brainstorming. Are you bringing the two groups together? Are you bringing in students? Are you bringing in marketing? Who's who's involved in this? That's a, That's a good question. I think the more diverse the room, the better. Mm -hmm. So when we changed our admission essay, I was in the room, admission counselors were in the room, our student staff were in the room. And so all these people that, you know, might have had an idea about it, you know, at one point, the vice presidents and deans of the college were talking about this. And so I tend to say more is more and let people play outside the lines. I think it's a more enriching professional experience for them. Mm -hmm. But I also think you just get better content as a result. Well, diving in here to why I think we're, we're most excited to talk about here mm -hmm. and, and I can pick your brain, I just want to ask you more about the application process and the admission mm -hmm. process and really reframing decisions to be more about likelihood to persist rather mm -hmm. than just retention or they're going to be success, whatever the success means. What does reframing as likelihood to persist mean to you? You know, one of the, the conversations that we have, you know, pretty honestly is finding your place, you know, and what that means, particularly within, within your circumstances. I have long felt that we need to move away from the system where we believe that a particular school offers something that is, you know, better for a student just based on virtue of what that school is. So what do I mean by that? Not every student can pick their high school. Not every student has that choice. Mm -hmm. And in my application pool, if I'm reviewing files, should I spend more time thinking about that student at this particular school as someone who is more virtuous or, you know, more likely to sort of gain admission and succeed at my school? Or another way to look at it is, uh, is the student doing as well as they can within their circumstances? Mm -hmm. This is the school they have. They can't choose whether or not they go there. So within that environment, are they succeeding as best they can? My evaluation might measure two different things performance within a rigorous curriculum, our ability to succeed despite the circumstances. And we schools talk about things like grit, talk about that in terms of being able to like persist through the college experience. Mm -hmm. To me, I think both of those come down to something that's actually more similar, which is motivation. And I don't think motivation is something you can teach. I'm motivated to succeed within this curriculum to spend time on it. I'm motivated to do everything I need to do within what's offered. And I think both of those are a secret sauce of a successful college student. Both of those students will come here and they'll be motivated to do what they need to, to make sure that they get resources, that they study as much as they can, that they get the help in order to be supported. 
and the way in which I look for that varies depending on the institution. That's interesting. You, with the high school, they can't pick their high school. Going further back, they can't pick their family circumstances either. Mm-hmm. Right? Like right. There may be all these extenuating circumstances that really challenge them outside. They might, you know, I've, I've known kids back when I was a teacher who sometimes didn't have electricity at home or they're yeah. helping support the family financially. And then you, you come up on tough, and I'll, I'll admit this is a tough conversation. It's almost tough for me to even say it. Are students who don't succeed because of their circumstances or students who succeed despite their circumstances? Mm, yeah. You know, that, that, that's helpful information. And so, you know, I think we have to get out of the way of thinking that our school is for every student and start figuring out for whom can we best support in their goals and are we a place where they can best accomplish that. So almost thinking instead of the students fit for you, how can we serve the student? Can we fit them? Right. Exactly. Exactly. What did you consider when you're evaluating applications a few years ago? What are some mm-hmm. things that you used to evaluate that either you no longer consider or just carry a different weight, either more or less than they did before? Yeah, I'll start, I'll start off with the qualitative and then I'll, I'll get more to the quantitative, like mm-hmm. test scores, for example. About four years ago, we moved to a largely qualitative evaluation system. We haven't talked a lot about it. We're doing a lot of studies on it to figure out if it's something that will continue. Mm-hmm. Our biggest goal is to make sure that students will be here, that they're, they'll thrive, that they'll be successful. You know, one of the things that we do is we break down the transcript, but we're spending a lot more time figuring out if there's students who are going to contribute to our community. Mm-hmm. When we started this, we looked at the application and said, what other stories is this telling us? What are we looking for in a school? Is this something that we can actually determine from the application materials? Mm-hmm. But a good example of that is one of the things we look for, the extent to which a student enhances, participates, creates or supports community and community activity. And it's, it's a very long expression. <laughs> Think about having community builders on campus that create space for other students. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you might have a different type of college atmosphere. But, you know, when we have really bright students that are also thinking about the impact of their intellect and their mm-hmm. actions on their peers, all of a sudden this can become a multiplier. And, you know, we're measuring this. We're, we're, we're asking about curiosity. I'm voraciously curious. Mm-hmm. We're talking about their engagement. Are you apathetic? Are you considering your, the impact on your world with reckless abandon? You know, <laughs> these subtle differences because what I, what I realized is when I went back and look at, looked at these applications, that they were just numbers, yeah. you know, and, and it's part of why we issue U.S. News and World Report, because students are more than numbers. They weren't telling us a story. And now when we look at this qualitative information, I know who this student is. Mm-hmm. I can see how they're going to interact with the classroom. I can uh, have a better understanding of their resilience. They're seeking knowledge if they take responsibility for their mistakes or if they choose not to because those things show up on our campus in different ways if we don't do a good job of uh, identifying people who are going to come here and thrive. Now, how, how do you measure something like that ability to impact and build community? I assume that there's different things you have to collect then, right? Well, it's interesting. I wish I could kind of show you the picture mm-hmm. of, of my Hawaiian <laughs> race board, but um, recommenders are really great mm-hmm. at telling us how students impact their classroom. They'll talk about a student who brings other students into the conversation. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about a student who comes afterwards and asks more questions and seeks clarity. And they talk about people who 
don't do a great job of understanding their emotional impact on their classmates. Hmm. They might be really bright, but are they empathetic? And students also signal this in what they write about and how they write about it. I was surprised to find that we are able to reflect on all of these. And if we don't have any information, it's a push. But yeah, yeah, students are pretty transparent about talking about their impact on others. Okay. That's interesting. That, can, do you have to get more recommendations then or different types of recommendations? To be honest, we call probably three to 500 counselors and teachers every year. Wow. And wow. so if I'm reading a file and we need critical information, I can't tell, mm-hmm. um, we'll call people. You know, I, I think counselors have come to expect that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I say, can you give me some context about this? Am I reading this right? Mm-hmm. It also kind of gets rid of the uh, you know, there's some teachers that were like, well, average is average. You know, this is not punitive, but it's just middle of the road. Yeah. And there's some teachers that say like, yes, this was of all they, all they did well. This is something that was exceptionally different for their ability to succeed. Mm-hmm. But then we also get life circumstances that give us context. Okay. So you're looking at this very, what, what's the weight there? How much is a, well, we've got a a 3.0 student who's, who's this great community builder would be really interesting. We've got this kid who's just kind of apathetic, but is a perfect mm-hmm. 4.3 and, and all that, mm-hmm. you know, where both these kids could succeed, we'd rather have the one that's good for the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that's the perfect question. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really is. And so what I say is what's more important than what? You mm-hmm. know, so one thing that we had to do was make sure that this was a system that could be verified. So statistically accurate, mm-hmm. 12 people did it. You know, are the ratings about the same based on the information you have? Mm-hmm. Could we standardize it? Can we report off of it later on? And so while a good portion is qualitative, there is still a really important section, which is history of academic success, grades, grade distribution, mm-hmm. and GPA. And so, you know, are you an AAAB student? Or are you more like, you know, a BCDD student? And we actually, mm-hmm. you know, indicate that. And then are these the best classes you could have taken within your circumstances? So strength of the schedule isn't this independent how many APs you have. It's all dependent upon your curriculum. Mm-hmm. And so if you took the most rigorous load at your school, what we're starting to find out is that you do well at our school, and which is sort of that relativity that I talked yeah. about, spoke about before. So no matter what, you have to be able to succeed in the classroom. We're we're fortunate enough where we have enough students who fulfill our academic criteria, where all this other criteria can make a difference. So have a choice of students who are community builders and students who are the opposite of that. I'm able to make that decision because I've verified that they're academically competent, and now I can take a look at their community impact. And yeah, there's some students that are I know, you know, are, have more academic opportunities, but based on their character and what teachers say, this is the right place where they can thrive. Mm-hmm. I think that, that's the big piece for me. Qualitative is hard to scale, right? It's hard to yeah. do when you have, uh, how many applications do you get a year right now at Reed? About 9,000. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so going through and doing that, I assume you don't, do you still have 12 people review each one or was that more of the testing phase? Now, I'll, I'll be honest, it takes us longer to read than probably any place out there. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, we're moving to committee reading because having two people in the room helps. Mm-hmm. But it, it is a long process. And this is not an efficient process mm-hmm. we do here. And so, yeah, that that's the barrier that we're coming up against. Yeah. 
is, you know, how do we get through them? Achieving equity isn't the most efficient always, though. Right? No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Well, you really see it in the students. When you're mm-hmm. focusing on people who build community, we have students here who are thinking about other students. It makes mm-hmm. a difference. It makes a real difference. Absolutely. I mean, the other pieces were test blind, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, back when uh, COVID hit, Caltech and Reed were one of the first two schools in the top 100 of any rankings that decided to forego the test score. Mm-hmm. You know, I had long said, we're not going to get rid of the test score. I always felt that the barrier was not the test score. It's how people made decisions off of the test score. Mm. Okay. So we knew populations perform differently. So why are we using the test score as the primary metric for them getting in or out? And so the ACTRC never stopped us from saying yes to anyone. And it didn't have to. And mm-hmm. so, you know, why get rid of it then? What I will say, and I'm giving you the real sort of short version here, is that I have been amazed at how how much I don't miss it and mm-hmm. how much we weren't hampered by it. I really I thought we'd be really handicapped by not being able to use it. And, and there's one one phrase in there I don't want people to skip over. You think about how selective Reed is and about the type of students who are coming to Reed, but you phrase it as stopped us from saying yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so often it's the, well, who are we rejecting? And, and I think that's a different mindset too, right? You don't yeah. take that same mindset of, well, this test score is going to disqualify them or this this aspect is going to disqualify them, right? Is that really how you're approaching everything is... What can we do to say yes? Absolutely. Fine. Mm-hmm. I just said that to my staff. We find ways to say yes. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest. So Reed had, um, you know, last I checked, the 30th highest average test score in the nation. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a real deal. And we have become more diverse mm-hmm. socioeconomically, more diverse culturally, more diverse geographically in the last eight years and still requiring test scores. This idea mm-hmm. that the test score is a limit, in my opinion, is a misnomer. You only need to say yes. You know, I, I've always, back in my more cynical days when schools were test optional, I said it's the best example of higher ed's version of don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, people could not access ACT and SAT like they mm-hmm. once could. They couldn't take it twice if they want to. There were true barriers for students. And so we said, let's just take it off the table. That context of their, their curriculum do you have profiles on every single school then that, that help you? Because I think back, you know, I went to a high school where it's very small high school, one AP class offered, you know, and there's schools that would look at that if they didn't have the context, so that's your only option anyway, mm-hmm. you know, that, that might look bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of picked up this idea from a colleague at McAllister in, in um, St. Paul, Minnesota. What we do is um, we take a look at the max number of APs they could take mm-hmm. and how many they do take. And it's just data, <laughs> you know, sort of objective data. And we don't see that's good or bad. You know, what I tell students is, you know what the good math is. <laughs> and so students know what it takes to have a rigorous schedule. Mm-hmm. And and in all honesty, so we, we're not permanently test blind. We, we've made a decision to renew it on a two-year basis. We've done that twice. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the year, we ask students to give us their test scores so we can evaluate it. Oh, that's smart. Um, at the end. And we've yeah. got about 70% of our students who send us their test scores, mm-hmm. both people who applied and didn't apply. Mm-hmm. And our average has not changed. Mm-hmm. And I, I just think that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that I thought particularly there's a way you look at this where the top test earners really hate the policy because, you know, they don't get that extra benefit. But I think students get it. I think it makes sense to them. 
you're renewing these policies, you're looking at all this, what are you rethinking for the future? You know, we had all these great right. sessions at NACAC reviewing these, you know, just the policies in general, the barriers. There was a big focus on that this year in sessions. Yeah. You know, what are you rethinking post NACAC? Wow. I mean, a lot. You know, high school counselors are really good at giving us a real sort of reality check. Mm-hmm. But it was actually colleagues from a, a college that talked about uh, calculus and how mm-hmm. students that take calculus have an edge on admission and really going through and helping us understand that calculus is associated sometimes with certain gender, certain background. If you look at it, it does give you some usable data if you break it out by race. But as soon as you add in statistics, it sort of confounds Hmm. the data and says like, oh, this is actually also a very good tool to help us understand how well students succeed. And I'll admit, particularly being test blind, we focused a lot on math, a lot on science and the highest level math and the highest level science. And yes, that's often calculus. They're right. When schools look at statistics, it is, well, I should say what I do. It was my inclination to say this is not as rigorous a course, even though I hmm. love statistics. Yeah. I have a little background there in, in, with psychology, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it was it was really compelling that once you combine these statistics, these two, and you look at success, particularly by first-generation college students, they're good indicators of whether or not a student will succeed. So an A in stats is a, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. And so I have to think long and hard about how we take a look at these math courses mm-hmm. and exactly how I'm making decisions about what's important. If I'm just forgoing one thing that has certain biases and picking up another, which I'm unaware of its mm-hmm. <laughs> deficiencies. Gosh, I just need to be a little bit more thoughtful, but I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. a lot about that. Is that across the board though? If I want mm-hmm. to do creative writing, does math still predict my ability to succeed? That would be the interesting follow-up I'd, I'd be interested in. Gosh, that that's such a great question. So I'll tell you what, what data I was going off of before. And, you know, Michigan Ross is one of the schools, but there were three panelists. So I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not really giving my colleagues their due credit who presented this session, you know, what I witnessed in my own data and my own research was that no matter the major, one of the best academic indicators in grades was both math and science for how they'd succeed. That is really interesting. And yeah, and I, and that was one of the reasons I found it to be so compelling. Yeah. What, what, what I had learned a while ago that no matter the major, it was, hmm. it was helpful. My mind immediately goes to, is that say more about the student or about how college classes are being taught and structured, that they're they're favoring that type of mentality? I know. Well, I kind of think it might be what you... So in my mind, the reason I don't care if you take IP or AB or college in the schools or schools at the local community college is because you're making a decision to challenge yourself. And so I kind of think it says more about the student. The student decided not to mm-hmm. let up off the gas. They wanted to challenge themselves mm-hmm. in other areas that maybe weren't their best interest. Maybe that student's curious. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just sort of motivated in a different way. But I, I don't know if we're making the same point, but I think it says yeah. a lot about the student, you know, how they're motivated. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm much more just curious of what, what is it behind that? I, I see something like that. <laughs> it's like, good sauce. Okay, why? I always want that why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, that's kind of the fun part of this is like, you know, I find myself 
sort of making up stories. Yeah. <laughs> it's a story I tell myself about it. Yeah. But, you know, that'd be a, that'd be sort of a, a good exercise to take yeah. a closer look at that. Yeah, it'd be really Ooh, interesting. Surveys, to, right? Yeah. And that makes me wonder now. It, I would love to sit down and talk to some of these students who, I mean, if, if you do well in math and science, if you're taking those classes and you want to study engineering, okay, no brainer, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But boy, it's those other areas that don't necessarily need it. If it's still indicative there, that's where wheels are turning in my brain of why is that? Is it, is it that they're more motivated to challenge themselves? You know, what, what's behind yeah. that? I remember when I went to college, um, I went to St. Olaf, North of Minnesota, and that, you know, that's where I was an admission counselor yeah, for, yeah. you know, X years of my career. But I remember being in a classroom my first semester, writing down like a dozen things I wanted to do mm-hmm. and like marking them off and being mm-hmm. like, what, what are, can I take classes in this? Can I major in this? And that's mm-hmm. why I was psychology, communications and theater back then yeah. speech theater. Because I just had, I just wanted to explore all these ideas and I felt yeah. comfortable at the place. And so I think if you have that intellectual curiosity, you know, I think that really does bring you places. Mm-hmm. And so I think a student who continues to dip in these things, I mean, hey, if you're an engineer and you've also read some of the great works, when you're in that critical meeting of someone deciding if they're going to pick you to put their building together and you can talk about how the building makes you feel. About you know what it's reminiscent of, about the you know the the experience people will have in that, you might be able to make a connection or be more compelling with that other knowledge that made you a more well-rounded person. And if you were like, well, I don't know, do you want iron or steel? (laughs) (laughs) Pardon my ignorance. I know I'm oversimplifying. (laughs) Yeah, but and and I absolutely. I mean, you're you're talking to a fellow liberal arts person who took far too many classes to far. (laughs) a field but but it's that it's that indicative of success that really is so interesting to me why why what yeah have you i mean have you heard of those like high impact activities yeah i mean so you think about so there there are behaviors or practices that make a difference Mm -hmm. and so you know i don't know that it is necessarily the class in and of itself but it might be indicative of a behavior or practice. Mm. Maybe it's just good advising. Maybe teachers say you have to take this. Yeah. You know, there's probably some confounding data in that, but yeah, I, I catch your drift. Yeah. <laughs> well, before I down too much of a rabbit hole there, you know, Reed has such a big national draw. And with that, I'm sure you're trying to compare transcripts and, and standards across the country. I mean, you're talking about really mm. trying to have that context of every high school. Well, there's a couple of high schools uh, in the nation, you know, it's, talking about tens of thousands that you have to be able to pull up there. And then you have international applications in the mix too. How are you training staff to evaluate all these accurately and on that level playing field so that you don't see something coming in and and think that, Uh oh, this student has much more rigorous because you've seen like I have honors PE classes and things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, so, I mean, it is, you know, I think in order to become, sort of proficient in application reading takes you like three years and um, we can do a whole lot to emulate good practices in the first year, but that's also why we have more hands that are touching and seeing the file. So I think to begin with, we kind of talked about things philosophically. And so, you know, I brought a team over to a local high school today 
And, you know, I had a conversation with them about, you know, why we do what we do. It's not to get people into read, it's to get people into college. And so there's a mindset about this, which helps students not feel pressure to say yes to every student, but to also sort of look at it in terms of, you know, how can we best support them in the search? So why do I start there? Because you start ignoring or paying attention to some stuff based on what you think your goals are that might sort of push you off in different directions that aren't great. So the first thing is, you know, we spend a lot of time with the school profile, help people understand what the classes mean. We grid every single academic course grade by grade, and we do analysis on these. Mm-hmm. We go through, we talk about, you know, appreciating people within the school system they've had. I talked all about all that. But then later on in the cycle, we go back and we do sort of a blind taste test. <laughs> I, put, okay. I cover up the name mm-hmm. and I show people a file and I say, okay, what should we do? You know, what happened here? What are we looking at? They don't know the school. They don't know the ethnicity. They don't know anything. And it is fascinating how that always helps us have more robust conversations about reducing bias. Mm-hmm. It, it always brings up issues that we always sort of have to wrestle with, but it's a real way to keep ourselves honest. You know, I, I worked at the school where I graduated and it is just natural to want the best for your own school. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it means you're a little tight on the front door. <laughs> so, you know, we have to work our way through that. And people are coming from different backgrounds. And so you have to have a shared philosophy. You can't just sort of give people a file and assume they're going to do well. It's actually somewhere where your leaders need to spend a lot of time. And with this training, do you have staff kind of sort of the more veteran staff helping train younger staff or, or are there risks there that they'll pass down bad habits? Yeah. So, you know, this year we're going to try the shared committee where two people are reading the same file at the same time, mm-hmm. but there are probably about three groups that read every file and they're always going to spend some time with me or with my director, just talking philosophically about students. And we have long conversations, not the short ones mm-hmm. to sort of explain what we're saying. And if we're not sure, we check. I do this exercise where I give people an application, which is a single sheet of paper. And by the end of the exercise, there is a narrative, like this big (laughs) novel. And our lived experiences help these things come to life. It is so helpful to have someone say, this is what I've usually seen with these type of things. This is what I want you to consider. And if you can't answer that, try this. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question directly, yes, senior staff, yes, there could be some continued biases. Before we move into committee, we literally read a sheet that talks about our committee agreements, Mm -hmm. how we make decisions, how we come to decisions, and it takes the pressure off any one person not getting it right, but to help activate their advocacy. When you're having those two people reading, have you run into or or how do you get in front of the idea that, well, one person may just have the more dominant personality and the other one doesn't feel like they can speak up or doesn't feel like they can advocate for someone the other person says no or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done it yet, but I think the system will set up where consensus is not required. Okay. And so there's certainly some qualitative behaviors that we have to think about, sort of what I mentioned before. Then there's shared comments that you can both contribute, but then it goes on to a second group. And that first one, the, the, the first reader, their idea is to give us a lay of the land. What do we feel like we're seeing here? Based on this, how do you think we'll proceed? And then it moves on to that next person. They take that and move more towards the final decision. And our committee last year was me, 
another staff member, either the director, assistant dean, and the admission counselor. So we ran small committees of three people where I was in almost every decision that came out of our office. Mm-hmm. And we could argue that that is or isn't consistency. We do a lot of exercises to make sure that we're making the same type of decisions in the first round and not changing midstream. And, you know, you're, you're not my boss, but I think you're pretty approachable and all. But do, do those younger staff feel like they can speak up and, and maybe disagree or advocate or for or against a student with you? That, that power dynamic always, always trips me up. It's like, do, do people feel they can speak up? Yeah, uh, it's your job to. I mean, when, when you say like you can speak up versus it's your job to speak up. Mm-hmm. And so we tell people, if you come here, it's your job to say something. That's what we expect. And if you don't, then you're not doing your job. And our goal is to do your job and you're evaluated on your ability to contribute. That puts a different type of energy on it when you list it as your responsibility. The second thing is, yeah, I have office hours every week for my team mm-hmm. and for you know student staff. But committee is the great equalizer. <laughs> and yeah. so that's not been a problem yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so, and then I tell everybody, you know, everyone, your gut is right. You all get one or two students where you're like, I know the committee said this, I'm going to go the other way. Hmm. And if I don't agree with you, I say, okay, is this your student? You know, is this your one or two where you're like, hey, I, I know this is right. And mm-hmm. my answer is always going to be yes. Yeah, I always wonder about the power dynamics in it. Do, do staff feel they can speak up? Because I've seen so often where, yes, they should and yes, they can, but they, well, I can't. You know, they're the boss. No matter how approachable the person is, no matter how much they tell them, but I love that you use that language that it's their job to. Mm-hmm. That really does change it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. How we get how we get paid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I like to talk and think a lot about barriers for students, both in the application and the matriculation process. What barriers are you seeing for admissions staff, however? I think mm-hmm. that, that kind of feeds right over here. What prevents them from doing their best work and serving students better? Oh, yeah. I mean, well, number one, COVID was so blastedly mm-hmm. hard for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, admission people don't roll into this job because they want to get rich. They, they usually do this because they feel like, they can believe in the college, that they can help make some possibilities for other folks. Mm-hmm. And in COVID, people were so overextended mm-hmm. because there's so much unknown information and it changed so quickly that I think people who had to help families make important decisions about their lives mm-hmm. felt really strongly about it. And so I think right now, thing that is challenging admission counselors is just good rest and reconciliation mm-hmm. And trying to figure out what their new relationship is to the students within this environment and how they can help and contribute. And let's be honest, that's kind of the human condition right now. You know, it's, it's not just, I'm not going to assume that that's just our profession. Mm-hmm. The second thing is, I think we're really aspirational. I had a talk with a colleague that really sees so many opportunities. And here I am saying like, okay, let's do this in a measured way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want to say like, well, how about we just do it all? And I, and I get that. <laughs> what I always say is things have to be sustainable. If we're going to show up, I don't want to do it for one year. And when you decide to do your next great adventure, that that disappears. Mm-hmm. Or we disappear from them because we can't sustain it. Mm-hmm. So every agreement that I make, I say, this is a three-year deal. We're going to show up for this organization for three years because the first year we're figuring out, second year we got a good feel of it, the third year we figure out if it's working. 
Mm-hmm. And I think taking that long approach with a team that tends to be young, it's just a lot to get around when you're really idealistic and you can finally apply that. How do you do it in a way that feels like we're meeting their urgency? I think that's a, it's a real thing. Three years probably seems like a long time if you're 21, 22, just coming out of three to four years of college. Right. Now, well, I have to commit to doing this three years in this cycle. And it's done. <laughs> and every time our society throws something at us that isn't fair, that's difficult, man, they really care about our students. Mm-hmm. You know, they really want to make things right. You know, one thing I found out when I became a staff member, because I went straight as from the student worker side to the staff side, I was like, oh, I'm no longer a student. Yeah. <laughs> and that happened really quickly. They're like, why are you talking to me, old man? And I'm like, yeah. I just came out with you like three months ago. <laughs> and so you're like, oh, what's my role in this? Yeah. <laughs> I sat behind you in philosophy. What are you talking about? <laughs> I know. Seriously. Uh, oh. You're, you're working with, with a lot of staff who have started recently here in the last couple of years, probably post-COVID even. Mm. What, uh, well, there's no such thing as post, but post-beginning <laughs> of, I guess. Uh, are there new things that they are just killing it at that, that maybe they've, skills they've developed in the past couple of years with so much going on in their life that we should be looking forward to and saying, hey, when these kids hit director, I keep saying kids, I, that's showing... I know I'm being old when I start saying things. <laughs> now you're an old man. Well, <laughs> come on. <laughs> when they uh, when they get into that director, that VP level, we're in good shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I think uh, this current generation of uh, folks who are coming out of college are so balanced in their empathy. Mm-hmm. I see the last sort of putting on airs. I'm representing mm-hmm. for all the little people. Um, so they're much more authentic about hearing. I think that the current graduate student isn't as extroverted. I think they're more still. And so they um, are really better at the subtle style of communication. Okay. And I think this generation is very symbolic. I think there are a lot of symbolic acts. So, you know, when I first started working, what happened in your personal life with your identity? I didn't talk about that at work. Mm-hmm. And now if things happen in the world, I talk to my team about it. I send out an email. I say, I know this is happening. This is going on in your lives. And so your lived experience and your workplace are no longer two separate things. Mm-hmm. And so really sort of being a good mentor, supervisor, acknowledger of everyone's full experience, they're much better at that because they understand that it is our whole selves, bring our whole selves to our experience. They're they're not segmenting work from personal life. It's it's mm-hmm. all life. So I, I think that's all really good. The last thing I'll say is, you know, we talked about a generation where people want to own everything, but they also wanted all the help. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing in between. This is a generation that wants to put structure to our activities, which I find really appealing because then it can mm-hmm. be duplicated. So in other words, they're saying, where does this belong in the big picture? Okay. You know, these are the things that are missing. Can we put in infrastructure? I love infrastructure. Yeah. And um, they're not just saying, let me do it or do it for me. They're saying they're looking at things that are more sustainable. Yeah. Looking at things in a more sustainable way. Yeah. And we, we need that. We need the foundation builders. Definitely. We really do. Brainstorming a bit here. You know, how does this community of professionals 
come together, support each other, rethink the recruitment together, gain students into college rather than just into my institution, beyond mm-hmm. just coming together and learning from each other at NACAC, at the state organizations. How do we support each other? I think the more consortium type activities that schools are, have picked up during COVID, I think that's good for us. Schools had our time figuring out where to talk to students. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of them would get together and throw an event. So a lot of folks would show up. And it really put them in a position of sort of collaboration. What can we all say that's true? And then how do we talk about what's distinctive? Mm-hmm. I think people are leaning a little bit more on both sides of the desk to help recruit a student to more of the partnerships, mm-hmm. which we used to have, but then we had less of. You know, my admission counselor called my high school counselor and he said, hey, any students there that you think I should be talking to? And then she pulled me and my friend down and said, hey, I got Bill Green on the phone from St. Olaf. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're like, oh, all right. The, the things we really, I think, need to be comfortable with is letting go, like really assessing if we still need to do some of this stuff mm-hmm. and not just out of practice. Times of crisis are really good times to reassess strategy. And I hope we don't miss this opportunity to think about how we're putting all of this together and offering it to students. Mm-hmm. When there's other people who are hearing this and saying, we're trying to move to this much more qualitative, but it, it's really hard for us. Is there a group of others like Reed who are already kind of meeting and talking about this and saying, well, this is working really well here. Does that exist yet? You know what? Yes. And, you know, I might give you the name of an organization to add later, but, mm-hmm. you know, there are schools that are trying to move towards a little bit more of a qualitative mm-hmm. um, way of evaluating applications. I can't recall the the group of individuals right now, but that's sort of how I ran into this. I think I talked about this once with someone. Also with the different approach with test taking, I think that's another sort of door of opportunity. One of the reasons schools can do this is because of how the rankings have changed. Mm -hmm. I don't think folks know this, but it used to be the case where if you had a certain proportion of your students as a test optional school who didn't take the test, that were part of your incoming class, you would be penalized on the rankings. And so the idea of really leaning into test optional as an access program just would have hurt your rankings. And um, when US News released that about, you know, two weeks after Caltech said they're going test blind, Mm -hmm. as long as we start making decisions and put students at the center of what we do, I think we have a lot of opportunity to do more qualitative, focus more on fit for what my values are rather than a shared list of values. Being student-centered is getting at what you're doing. You're building the community first by focusing on these community builders. These people are good for the community. And that's that's only going to help you, right? Because people want to be part of a community they like. I mean, you look at all the communities online, people want to be a part of something. And what mm-hmm. I'm hearing with all these pieces is you're focused on building that community that people flock to. I, well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things we see in our application are students who appreciate their place in the world and understand mm-hmm. social systems. That to us is sort of our ideal system that says, I see how it's all tied together. I'm self-reflective. And I understand that people have a place and this is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope that's the case. Yeah. Well, that feels like the perfect note to end on there as well. (laughs) As people listen to this, if they want to continue the conversation, how can they reach out to you? They can shoot me an email, give me a call, truelove at reed.edu. 
I'm happy to engage in any type of conversation about what we're doing or what other folks would like to do. I'm going to have them write down all their ideas on a piece of paper before. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're going to get so many notes in the mail now. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, well, I just, and I want to thank you for doing these. Hmm. I, I love them and I really appreciate your approach. And, you know, it's giving us a space where we're not just talking about our school, but we're talking about why we're doing this. And that's, that's really cool. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thank you. That's, I I love the why. I love the, I love the space. I love the conversation. It's not just a, here's what we did. It's here's why we did it. Here's how we built it. Here's why it matters. Exactly. Thank you. And and thank you so much for your time. I know that your days are 99% full. (laughs) Uh, but <laughs> I'm glad we, we finally got a chance to do this. It's been a long yeah. time. Yep. Well, appreciate it and, and stay safe out there. Okay. Thanks a lot. Will. take care. 